0: Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA, I'm your host Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from the big book through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. Today is going to be all about Bill's story. Uh, and hopefully we'll make it through the entire section in this episode. If not, I'll hope, uh, I'm will i going to do my best to try to split it up at a, at a place that's a little organic and then doesn't leave us short for the next episode. Um, I'm trying to parcel things out so there's not huge breaks at weird times in the reading. I think that's just going to end up happening on occasion. Uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But I think a lot of it will have to do with me not flapping my gums every 30 seconds. So hopefully I can get it through a little bit more this time. In any event, as was stated in the first couple episodes, I'm doing some of these back-to-back just to kind of get a head start, have have some episodes up for folks in case they do find my podcast and want to, you know, kind of get into things right away. And it also just gives me a chance to sort of keep up with the entirety of the show, get a couple episodes ahead. Uh, and the reason why I'm even bringing that up is because the... Uh, as with the first couple episodes I, I read from the daily stoic it's a it's a book by Ryan Holiday and Stephen Hanselman and it puts together words of wisdom from Seneca, Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius and then they kind of extrapolate on what whatever snippet they're they're choosing to to share um on occasion the you know extrapolation just doesn't really seem to fit the quote for me so i kind of just try to riff on it my own way and try to make it fit my own day and my own life at the time um the reason i, I choose have chosen to read, read from this is it sort of just gives me a way to start my day off uh, it gives me something to think about throughout the day um, sometimes it applies to my whole week or even my whole month on occasion you know the stuff goes over my head because i'm not a philosopher not a classically trained philosopher whatever that really means um Ultimately, I just find that, for the most part, there's always something in here that I can apply to my life. It's better to start off with this in my day than it is to start off immediately going to Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or something. So without further ado, this is July 5th. No one said it'd be easy. Good people will do what they find honorable to do, even if it requires hard work. They'll do it even if it causes them injury. They'll do it even if it will bring danger. Again, they won't do what they find base, even if it brings wealth, pleasure, or power. Nothing will deter them from what is honorable, and nothing will lure them into what is base. Seneca, Moral Letters 76.18. If doing good was easy, everyone would do it. And if doing bad wasn't tempting or attractive, nobody would do it. The same goes for your duty. If anyone could do it, it would have been assigned to someone else, but instead it was assigned to you. Thankfully, you're not like everyone. You're not afraid of doing what is hard. You can resist superficially attractive rewards, can't you? So, I, you know, I like this reading specifically for me because, I mean, I have a past of choosing the easy road, which typically was whatever didn't require duty of me or responsibility of me. Uh, I I certainly... Went outside of myself to kind of avoid any of those sorts of tasks that required good for periods of my life because it is harder. It is harder to do the right thing. It's harder to confront your responsibilities head on than it is to just fucking lounge around all day. I'd rather sit at home and play video games. I am not one of these people that wants to work for the rest of my life and find something calming or. I don't have that internalized, you know, capitalism to keep me moving and keep me wanting to work. I want to retire as soon as possible. And I wanna be able to focus on things that bring me joy, which is not a 40 hour work week, let me tell you. Now, I don't think that particularly makes me a lazy person. I just have different priorities. I can spend hours and hours working on some sort of a hobby or a project because it brings me joy. But I guess where that would apply for this, you know, this reading specifically is, in order for me to get to those points, I need to be able to do the duties ahead of me that aren't necessarily rewarding at the time You know, I have to go to work in order for me to afford my hobbies and the place to do them. I have to do the right thing and be a better person when confronted with adversity at the workplace. If somebody's rude to me, you know, I have to find a good way of resolving that. If I'm rude to somebody else, I have to find a way of resolving that as well. You know, there was this, I'm sure it's a famous saying that I'm kind of butchering, but the general idea is that it's easier to just be upset. It takes hard work to remain happy. To find happiness work within yourself work with others work in the world it's it's a daily task it takes constant effort and so that's why it seems like most people aren't happy is it, they don't want to do that work or it just feels like they can't do that work, that there just isn't a possibility for them to do that work. You know, when I was in depression, it wasn't just a matter of me trying a little harder to be happy. That wasn't what was missing. So you know, this is this is kind of something I apply or try to apply regularly that I guess for me an example is, it's, you know, it, it doesn't take anything to smile to someone. It doesn't take anything to be polite, really. It does take a little bit of effort, uh, but it can help someone else have a little bit brighter of a day. And that goes, you know, the same with like small compliments or just when given the opportunity to choose to be rude to somebody, just not taking it. Or when given the opportunity to do just a little extra uh, for somebody else, choosing that option, even though it might it might mean, you know, being a little late for something or, you know, it. I could even apply this to traffic. When given the opportunity to let somebody in, I, I could either choose the very easy path of just ignoring them and continuing to drive uh, or giving them enough space that they can come in and making sure that they see that they have that room. And it doesn't take much out of anything of my day, but it does take effort. And those little things add up, you know, throughout the entire day and hopefully can, can be converted into bigger things. You know, if, I'm, if I find myself upset with my girlfriend, Uh, It takes real effort to have a constructive conversation, you know, about that thing that I'm upset. It wouldn't take any effort at all to completely ignore it and pretend like everything's fine. Later, that's going to come around. That's definitely going to cost me. It's going to cost me in resentment. It's going to cost me in, you know, just different kinds of miscommunication. It's going to cost me in having a hard time not being, you know, short. With the person I'm with, because I wasn't willing to just let them know that something upsets you know, upsetted me, and it, it could cost me a relationship. When the harder thing, while yes, more difficult, would have resolved the issue right then. Hopefully, you know, depending on your partner, and depending on the situation and how how you present that communication. For me, you know, when I do talk with my partner about things that are difficult, we resolve it immediately, and then it doesn't become something that weighs on us. And that takes more work. That takes a lot more work. And to me, that is a duty to be a good partner is to do that work. You know, currently I have a good, healthy relationship, which isn't something I can say that I've had a lot of in my past. And it's because I do that work and we do that work. I'm not the only one who's doing it. That would be unhealthy as well. But I think that's more what this thing is saying is... You know, it, it really does play along into the AA program. The hardest part of the program after you've done the steps is continuing to do the steps and continuing to do the difficult parts of the steps. You know, we get past the inventory section and we get into just kind of a daily rigorous, you know, set of activities that aren't easy. There, Well, they can be, they get easier over time, but they're always work. So anyways, that's probably a long explanation for a very short reading, but I hope somebody got something out of that. And before we get into... The, the reading here I just uh, in between me recording the beginning of this and me about to get into the reading um, I just wanted to share I finally made it to a meeting uh, an in-person meeting I had done some Zoom meetings before, uh, kind of petering off from that and then like sporadically would do a Zoom meeting here and there, but there is a uh, a very well-known meeting hall very close to my house here in Portland um that even uh, that Bill Wilson had had visited a few times and it was kind of it's kind of an heirloom property. Uh, anyways, it's it's only about 10 minutes away and so I was able to go do an in-person meeting and I was expecting there just to be a few people at the meeting location and there was There was a lot. Uh, It was exactly what I needed. Um, I recently had a a death in the family, and I had just gotten back from packing up or helping pack up some of the belongings of my grandmother who who had passed away. I had the opportunity of reconnecting with a a relative, my aunt, who I haven't seen in 20-something years, and an uncle who I hadn't seen in 20-something years. So it was, you know, bittersweet. There was a lot of just reminiscing there, but there it, it turned up a lot of stuff. You know, a lot of just I wasn't extremely close to this grandmother, so there was some guilt there for not having worked harder at becoming closer. There was some guilt there for not sort of fully forgiving her for some things. I had kept her at a distance because I felt she was kind of a toxic person. We had connected on Facebook, and I had let her know that you know I did care care about her, and that I was impressed that she was working so hard and. Anyways, it just, it wasn't expected. She wasn't quite that. She was 77, so I didn't expect that she was going to be passing away. And I guess I just kind of put off going up there and really making things correct by visiting her. I didn't know that her health had gotten as bad as it was, and... I, I will honestly just admit that I'm kind of lazy when it comes to stuff like this with just family in general and I guess that's some of what got turned up and it also just reminded me that I have other grandparents that have done so much in my life that I don't really give a lot of time and attention to. It also reminded me that I haven't been giving a lot of time and attention to the thing that made me healthy enough to be able to go up there and be of service to my family. It just reminded me also that she had very little left over and I'm going to have even less on the path that I'm currently on, you know. It was – anyways, when I got back, I realized that I really just needed a meeting, that I had a little bit of a time gap that I don't usually have on a Sunday and realized that it was a good opportunity for me to go to a meeting. It was very close by. It was not an inconvenience, which shouldn't matter. And it was really just – it was really good. It was just a very – Basic standard meeting, and what I I saw a person there I, I knew a little bit. Uh, there were some people there that were struggling with some things that I was also struggling with. Uh, I didn't get a chance to share, but I can tell that I need that more for sure. You have talked before about the fact that while while I don't feel like my relationship with alcohol is is the same that it was when i was just incapable of quitting i realize i don't have i don't have very many things in front of my first drink you know say what you want about the program or about the god aspect of the program regardless of what kind of recovery you're in i think just having more things of personal value in front of that first drink be it different organizations you belong with different community groups you're involved with your friends and your family people that are important to you Hobbies that are important to you, things that you know that you just can't do if you go out and drink. People in your life that you know just will know, will not tolerate the bullshit any longer that you care about things, even if it's something small. Like I I have a few things that are in front of that. I I do not just I do not have anything that would really survive me waking up with hangovers on a regular basis. I don't have a lot of time to spend on the things I do care about, like these hobbies here, like like starting a a podcast. Those are things, right, that are in front of that, but none of it's specifically recovery based. I, I could I could argue that this podcast is, but it's fairly new and it's part of me realizing that I need more things in front of that first drink. But none of it's recovery-based. I don't have sponsees. I don't really, at the moment, have a sponsor. I'm not reading out of the book regularly outside of this podcast just now. I'm not going to meetings. I don't have people that would notice I haven't been going to meetings. Or, or you know, the group that I was going to, you know, nobody's ever really checked on me. Not that I've ever really checked on anybody. I did, I guess, when I was going to the groups before. But, you know, I don't have that connectivity. I don't have that sinew and that tissue that makes the fellowship important and a reason why this program works. And I think it is stupid. F- not That's not really the best way of saying that. It's not stupid. It's dangerous. It's dangerous for me to just continue to operate the way that I was. While I wasn't spiraling out of control, if anything, I'm more like emotionally stable than I have been in a very, very, very long time, it possibly ever in my entire life. I don't feel that I'm growing either. I just feel like I'm kind of stagnant as a person and it won't take long for me to start going backwards. That's just history right there. There's just no reason for me to think that doing nothing will result in me continuing to, prog- uh, you know, grow and, and progress and be a better person. It's not like I'm going out of my way to start shit with people, but I'm not going out of my way really to do much in the world. So while, again, while this podcast is is a way to help with that, it's not a meeting and it's not an um, active recovery. So it was good to go to that meeting and kind of just remember, you know, remember how important that was. Um, Uh, to me and is to me, you know, and my recovery. And, you know, it didn't really necessarily help with all of the stuff that me going up and taking care of my grandmother's things sort of churned up, but it settled a, a little so that I can kind of pick through it in my own time. And it's not just floating around like a little tornado in my head. It's rested enough that I can I can examine it piece by piece and and just sort of take it in at a reasonable speed. I apologize for some of the noise artifacts you might be hearing. I don't really have a very good time frame for recording at the moment, and uh, one of my roommates when they cook, uh, it's a full contact sport, and even though I'm on a different floor as them, some of that's going to bleed through. I apologize, there's just not really much I can do about that. So hopefully you're still bearing with me and none of that is too abrasive, Uh, but you know without saying much more i'm just going to get right into the reading and again that's going to be bill's story for those following along as far as i know I think in most books this is still pages one through sixteen. Uh, so of course we'll be starting on page one. War fever ran high in the New England town to which we knew. Young officers from Plattsburgh were assigned, and we were flattered when the first citizens took us to their homes, making us feel heroic. This is Bill Wilson at his finest. Like he, he I know he crafted this sentence. He didn't just decide how he's. He's like okay. He probably spent weeks and and you know different different rough drafts and. You know everybody else just went right into it, but he had to. He had to come out with with his you know fucking great American novel. I, I love this dude for this shit. Uh, anyways. Here was love, applause, war, moments sublime with intervals hilarious. I was part of life at last, and in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. I just don't feel like anybody else's story starts out this way, you know? Uh, It's very um, endearing. I forgot the strong warnings and the prejudices of my people concerning drink. In time, we sailed for over there. I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. We landed in England. I visited Winchester Cathedral. Much moved I wandered outside. My attention was caught by a dog roll and an old tombstone. Here lies a Hampshire Grenader who caught his death drinking cold small beer. A good soldier is ne'er forgotten whether he dieth by musket or by pot. Ominous warning which I failed to heed. 22 and a veteran of foreign wars I went home at last. Which I just can't even imagine. Seriously, like 22 years old and having spent terms fighting overseas and surviving. Just the even ideal of surviving that seems ridiculous to me. Anyways, I fancied myself a leader, for had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation, my talent for leadership, I imagine, would place me at the head of vast enterprises, which I would manage with the utmost assurance. I took a night law course and obtained employment as investigator for a surety company. The drive for success was on. I proved to the world I was important. My work took me about Wall Street, and little by little I became interested in the market many people lost money but some became very rich why not i i studied economics and business as well as law potential alcoholic that i was i nearly failed my law course at one of the finals i was too drunk to think or write though my drinking was not yet continuous it disturbed my wife we had long talks when i would still her forebodings by telling her that men of genius conceived their best projects when drunk that the most majestic constructions of philosophic thought were so derived which What? I don't think Socrates was blasted about on some wine talking about whatever it was he was talking about. I don't think that's how that works. Could you imagine if like all of the stoic philosophers were just really hammered the whole time? I don't get the sense that that's true. Not from what I've read, just in that book of, you know, daily readings, but whatever. I get the idea of using that as some kind of way of convincing others. I've done that before in my past. Used that like, whoa, Hunter S. Thompson used to drink and do drugs. And look at him. He was a genius. Hunter S. Thompson is a fucking anomaly. I was not. (laughs) That's just the bottom line. You know, all these musicians and shit. There's a reason why there's there's certain musicians that we still talk about even to this day. Who, yeah, will probably on copious amounts of alcohol and drugs. But... There's a reason why the thousands that didn't make it aren't talked about, who probably were also on copious amounts of drugs. I don't think the connective tissue is the fact that they were on those copious amounts of alcohol and drugs. By the time I had completed the course, I knew the law was not for me. (laughs) That's funny. By the time he completed it. That just seems pretty typical. Most people go to college. The inviting maelstrom of Wall Street had me in its grip. Business and financial leaders were my heroes. Out of this alley of drink and speculation, I commenced to forge the weapon that one day would turn in its flight like a boomerang, and all but cut me to ribbons. Living modestly, my wife and I saved $1,000. I can only imagine how much that is now. Actually, I should find out. Not really knowing exactly what date this is, I'm going to guess it's probably like 1920 just to ballpark it and give a calculation, but it looks like that's roughly about $13,781 in today's money. It's it's not a small amount of money, especially when you consider like the times and how difficult it might have been to actually sock away $1000 because I doubt you were making the kind of money that would allow that very easily. It went into certain securities, then cheap and rather unpopular. I rightly imagined that they would someday have a great rise. I failed to persuade my broker friends to send me out looking over factories and management, but my wife and I decided to go anyways. I had developed a theory that most people lost money in stocks through ignorance of markets. I discovered many more reasons later on. We gave up our positions and Offrey roared on a motorcycle. The sidecar stuffed with tent, blankets, and a change of clothes and three huge volumes of financial reference service. Our friends thought a lunacy commission should be appointed. Perhaps they were right. And this, I'm going to just say right now that this kind of just pack a suitcase and go travel to look at different things you can invest in isn't really a, a way of going about it anymore. I don't think... I've heard stories about some folks who started off kind of poor like this and just giving it their all and then rising to success, but I just feel like this isn't a normal thing anymore and I feel like back then it was, it was fairly common, or at least it was reasonable. I mean, yeah, his friends called him crazy, but could you imagine doing that right now? Could you imagine if your friend was like, hey, I'm going to pack my little street bike up with everything that I own and I'm going to go check out this these you know series of factories so that I can invest in the stock market on them? I think technology has made that not necessary, but also that kind of all or nothing drive I guess just isn't seemingly as common or maybe it is and I'm just so far removed from those kinds of people that I wouldn't have recognized it if it did happen I don't know it's just a very unique seeming kind of thing to be able to do to just up and move and do it in a way that would reflect in the stock market anyways he goes on to say I had some success at speculation so we had a little money but we once worked on a farm for a month to avoid drawing on our small capital that was the last honest manual labor on my part for many a day we covered the whole eastern united states in a year at the end of it my reports to wall street procured me a position there and the use of a large expense account the exercise of an option brought in more money leaving us with a profit of several thousand dollars for that year run page three and we know absolutely nothing about his wife i've heard mean, it's lois and we we find out later in different ways but he has not once mentioned anything of significance about their relationship outside of the fact that she's also been willing to pack up and move along, you know, cross country with him. For the next few years, fortune threw money and applause my way. I had arrived. My judgment and ideas were followed by many to the tune of paper millions. The great boom of the late twenties was seething and swelling. Drink was taking an important and exhilarating part in my life. There was loud talk in the jazz places uptown. Everyone spent in thousands and chattered in millions scoffers could scoff and be damned i made a host of fair weather friends my drinking assumed more serious proportions continuing all day and almost every night the remonstrations of my friends terminated in a row and i became a lone wolf there were many unhappy scenes in our sumptuous apartment there had been no real infidelity for loyalty to my wife helped at times by extreme drunkenness kept me out to those scrapes In 1929, I contracted golf fever. We went at once to the country, my wife to applaud while I started out to overtake Walter Hagen. Liquor caught up with me much faster than I came up behind Walter. I began to be jittery in the morning. Golf permitted drinking every day and every night. It was fun to chrome around the exclusive course which had inspired such awe in me as a a lad. I acquired the impeccable coat of tan one sees upon the well-to-do. The local banker watched me whirl fat checks in and out of his till with amused skepticism. Abruptly, in October 1929, hell broke loose in the New York Stock Exchange. After one of those days of inferno, I wobbled from a hotel bar to a brokerage office. It was 8 o'clock, 5 hours after the market closed. The ticker still clattered. I was staring at an inch of the tape which bore the inscription XYZ. Dash 32. It had been 52 that morning. I was finished and so were many friends. The papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of high finance. That disgusted me. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. My friends had dropped several million since 10 o'clock. So what? Tomorrow was another day. Just... (laughs) Like the absurdity of the stock market crash in 1929, I know there weren't as many people jumping to their deaths as it made it seem like, but still the fact that it even made it into this is something of note. The the idea that people were losing millions that fast, like it was such a crash that nobody, one, nobody realized that that was something that could be recovered from because it wasn't something that had ever happened before. And the stock market for the most part was still a fairly new ideal and a very fairly new concept. But, and I don't know a lot about how the inner workings of this market were, but as far as I understand, as long as people didn't panic sell and drive the prices down further, they w- for the most part, we're going to be fine. Like there's people, there's companies that were started well before the New York Stock Exchange crashed who survived it just by waiting it out. The fact that it existed in such a way that people could be on a string like this, where just one day of bad news is like, well, we're hanging it up. I could see why it bred so many people abusing alcohol in the, in the, you know this time frame. As I drank, the old fierce determination to win came back. Next morning, I telephoned a friend in Montreal. He had plenty of money left and thought I had better go to Canada. By the following spring, we were living in our accustomed style. I felt like Napoleon re- returning from Elba. No say, Helena, for me. But drinking caught up with me again, and my generous friend had to let me go. This time we stayed broke. He doesn't actually say what he's doing up there. Yeah, I don't know what kind of work he was doing, but he wasn't doing it anymore. We went to live with my wife's parents. I found a job then lost it as a result of a brawl with a taxi driver. Mercifully, no one could guess that I was to have real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. I became an unwelcome hanger-on at brokerage places. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three, got to be routine. Bathtub gin is referencing Prohibition, basically moonshine. I mean, it wasn't moonshine. It wasn't as strong as moonshine, but it it was... made in people's houses it wasn't made by a a company Uh, and the the way that they made it usually went undetected by the police and it because he was in new york i'm guessing this was fairly common since gin was kind of the drink of new york during this time now he's saying two bottles a day and often three got to be routine but I don't think that back then what he was drinking was like a fifth. I'm going to guess that a bottle was probably closer to a pint from what I understand. And if not a pint, it was thereabouts. I'm just not foreseeing that he was drinking three fifths of gin. It's possible, I suppose. I was up to a fifth of vodka, but that seems just a, a little unrealistic. Three fifths? I know people that were sucking back a, a half gallon pretty regularly. So like like I said, it could be possible that he was up to that. He did get pretty deep into some DTs at one point. So I'm not suggesting that he, he's making this shit up to sell himself as a super real drunk. But it, does, it doesn't seem like that bottle sizes were of... A fifth variety? I don't know, I didn't look too, too deep into that, but the bottle sizes seemed kind of all over the place. So, since he was drinking it bathtub gin style or whatever, I'm guessing that the bottles probably weren't just strictly fifths. Regardless, he was drinking a lot. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I would pay my bills at the bar and delicatessens. This went on endlessly, and I began to awaken very early in the morning, shaking violently. A tumbler full of gin, followed by half a dozen bottles of beer, would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation, and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. You know, it's interesting for me to think about the fact that when I really got bad in my drinking, I could just stop at the liquor store, and how easy it was for me to get I don't know how far I would go to get liquor. When I went to prison, I didn't drink the bathtub stuff that we called Pruno in there, you know, the, the homemade wine. But I don't know that that means anything. I don't think that means I'm not an alcoholic. It just means, I guess, that I didn't want to, like, drink rotten stuff. I, but it, I guess what even the point of that is, it's, it's impressive to me how hardcore some of these folks were back in a time when it really just wasn't easy to get alcohol. You couldn't just go down to the liquor store. However, doctors were prescribing alcohol to certain patients. So it was such a weird time to be a drunk, just realistically, such a very odd time to be an alcoholic. Gradually things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at the low point of 1932 and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious bender and that chance vanished. I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. Shortly afterward, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way and I had taken it. Was I crazy? I began to wonder, for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. And, God, I've been there, man. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this. Obviously, other people have been there. Maybe not to that extent, but... There's been so many times in my life where I was like, man, I got at least cut back and then got drunk that night. Or, you know, I really need to take this seriously and actually quit for a time. Like when I got my DUI, I went to a couple meetings, even though it wasn't prescribed yet and it wasn't something that I had to go through diversion for or anything. I just went because I knew that it wasn't good that I got a DUI. I don't think that's something that people really want to sign up for. But so I went and there was still kind of that voice in the back of my head that was like, I mean. Do we want to, do we want to quit? Like, but when I went before I got there, I was like, we got to stop, dude. We got to stop drinking. We're at that point. We're finished. But the second I sat down in that meeting, it's like, I mean, I don't know. Uh, it's not, it's not that bad. I just got to stop driving when I'm drinking. Just make some new rules. If, if I, if I decide I'm going to drink, then, you know, the keys go away. And like, in my case, shit, I went a year and a half, two years after that, after getting my DUI with never driving drunk. Like I actually followed my own rules. No matter how drunk I got, I would just keep my keys somewhere. I would make plans. I would walk home. I would get a ride. I would Uber. Like I never, I just never broke that rule. And it's, and looking back, it's like, well, why couldn't I make other rules? Like, don't start shit with people when I'm drinking, put my phone away, get off Facebook. Don't get into an argument about absolutely nothing with my significant other don't try to you know stay up so late that when i get up in the morning i'm still drunk and go to work Like, while I didn't drink and drive, I am sure there were plenty of times when I got up in the morning and drove to work that I was still under the influence because I really just was not giving myself enough time to even recover from the amount of alcohol that I was putting into my body. But, you know, I followed the rules, so I was okay. I was doing all right. Renewing my resolve, I tried again. Some time passed and confidence began to be replaced by cocksureness. I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day, I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time, I was beating on the bar asking myself how it happened as the whiskey rose to my head i told myself i would manage better next time but i might as well get good and drunk then and i did been there before as well the remorse horror and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable the courage to do battle was not there my brain raced uncontrollably and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity this is anxiety is what he's describing Back then, it probably wouldn't have been called that, but he definitely was experiencing some really impressive anxiety. Right about at this time, I'm sure plenty of times before this, but that impending doom sense of anxiety is a pretty intense kind of anxiety. I hardly dared cross the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market it would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Gin would fix that. So two dozen bottles and oblivion. I like that he, I thought, I don't like it, but it's interesting that he thought about killing himself. He was like, should I kill myself? Nah, we're, we're not quite there yet. Not at this moment. Not now. Like it's still on the table. He had moved away from, I'm not going to jump. I'm better than that To Well, you know, we should consider it, but maybe we'll consider it a little more later. The mind and body are marvelous mechanisms, for mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. Again, I swayed dizzily before an open window, or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling. Now he's actually toying with the idea of suicide. It's not a not now, it's a, well, if I got drunk enough. Definitely understand what he's going through here. There were flights from city to country and back as my wife and I saw escape. Then came the night when the physical and mental torture was so hellish, I feared I would burst through my window, sash and all. Somehow I managed to drag my mantras to a lower floor lest I suddenly leap. A doctor came with a heavy sedative. This is also interesting. That's not something that I think would happen, but the fact that he... The fact that he knew that he was at risk of suicide and thought the solution was putting the mattress on the ground in front of the house rather than seek any other kind of help, is is interesting. Like, he didn't want to die, but he knew that it was really outside of his hands once he started drinking. Next day, found me drinking both gin and sedative. This combination soon landed me on the rocks. People feared for my sanity. So did I. This is the section of the book that I like to read when people decide they're going to be super pompous in the meeting and say that we're only going to talk about alcohol because we're here to stop drinking alcohol and any outside substances aren't part of the program the fuck they aren't <laughs> all these folks had issues with other substances some of them were fucking around with with hallucinogens he was messing around with a sedative i'm gonna guess based on the time that it was probably laudanum which is you know fucking opium alkaloids morphine and codeine pretty much yeah he's basically robo-frying I I just feel like the fact that people might decide that you talking about smoking a couple J's while drinking, that that was something you supplemented your alcoholism with is somehow removing from the message of recovery from alcoholism is pretty bizarre since so many of the founders stories surrounded that yeah he was probably hardcore robo frying while he was drinking now i've learned over the years not to have like a actual resentment against people that decide what kind of sobriety people can talk about it's just their nature i guess it's just something that they need to work out they're not going to kick you out of the meeting because you're talking about smoking joints some meetings might because of how closed nature they are i mean honestly i would just suggest going on to a different meeting if it's that bad because there's not really any way that you're going to sway them these are people that probably have already read these passages and understand that there's other substances that are talked about but for some reason they've decided that the only way that they can stay sober is to completely remove that from the story and for me it's like at that point you're squabbling over the words in the book no differently than people squabble over the words of the bible you know there's different versions of aa For that very reason, people just can't agree on a lot of this stuff, even though it's very clear that he was abusing sedatives while drinking you saying the same thing as a part of your story could still just offend these people enough that it becomes an issue. And at that point, you could decide that, is it worth your time to die on a hill trying to get them to change their ways? Or is it more reasonable that in the future you just look for a different meeting? I know it puts you in a position, puts anybody in a position to go to a meeting and feel uncomfortable because it's a part of your story. But hopefully that not being able to talk about smoking weed or, you know, doing barbiturates or, shooting heroin in your story for that meeting is enough for you to drink. Like, I would hope that you're not at such a desperate point that even just not being able to talk about that in a share in one meeting is enough to put that person over the edge. I think that might be a little bit of a controversial take, but I kind of am of a mind that it doesn't behoove a person to focus on another person's inventory, and that would be a part of their inventory. Them being so staunch in the fact that they don't want to even hear about other people talk about substances is is a default or defect that they need to work on. That's some aspect of their character that they need to deal with. And allowing that to have enough power over myself, if I'm going to just speak about this more freely, that it would cause me to drink is more of an issue with my inventory. That's now on me. That's just my problem, you know, overall. So I guess pick your battles. Just be aware that... It doesn't make you some sort of a hypocrite because you also got high on some fucking oxys while you drank. You know, it doesn't mean that you're removed from the I, uh, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and you can only go to uh, Narcotics Anonymous or something. That's you're welcome here too. You just might have to find the meetings that fit a little bit better, or at least understand that the fucking founder of the program was doing the same thing. I could eat little or nothing when drinking and I was 40 pounds underweight. My brother-in-law is a physician and through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. (laughs) Look, I don't know if you know anything about the belladonna treatment, but uh, it sounds real fucked up. I don't think this is something I'd i'd honestly just go back to drinking basically they just pump you full of a bunch of chemicals there's like three separate separate like sets of chemicals that they kind of just pump into you and they use your physical reaction as a judgment on how much more or less they should give you if your eyes are you know if your pupils are dilated and your face turns red and you start having trouble drinking and swallowing well then next time they give you a little less of the belladonna which is fucking nightshade essentially and if you know that doesn't help then Uh, and you end up hallucinating because they've given you too much of that stuff, well, then they would start throwing in some castor oil or CC pills or blue mass, which is supposed to help with, like, bowel, you know, evacuation. Basically, so honestly what they were doing was they were basically just feeding you and pumping you full of actual poison, then castor oil and a bunch of other stuff to make you puke, poop, and purge all the alcohol that's inside you so that you can be clear of your withdrawals i guess it's it was supposed to be like a reset you know it was just a very harrowing and horrible experience from what it sounds like uh but it would just clean you out you you guys think the master cleanse is rough right or some other kind of a cleanse this is the real shit this this stuff sounds fucking awful and just read up on it if you're interested but the general idea was that they basically just poisoned you until you were completely clear of the effects currently of the physical effects of alcohol now that doesn't mean that there wasn't stuff that would linger because we don't really fully clear away the effects of long-term alcohol intake uh, just from a few days even from something like this but whatever was in there that would cause you to feel like it might Might be better to go back and drink is cleared out of you, if that makes sense. That physical kind of... It's hard to explain. If you've never actually come out of drinking, while I didn't experience the actual withdrawals, there's still like this big window where I just felt like it might be easier to drink. Like, I just think it would be simpler if I just had a beer. It gets you through that to where you're just fully reset so yeah his brain cleared because he pooped everything out of it he goes on to say hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much best of all I met a kind doctor who explained that though ex- uh, certainly selfish and foolish I had been seriously ill bodily and mentally it relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor though it often remains strong in other respects I disagree with the whole weak will thing but we'll we'll probably talk about that more I think I've already covered it a little bit but uh, whatever with that stuff my incredible behavior in the face of desperate desire to stop was explained understanding myself now i fared forth in high hope for three or four months the goose hung high i went to town regularly and even made a little money surely this was the answer self-knowledge i mean of course that's what's kept me sober is i know so much i know so much more now because i'm older Ugh. it's just i'm not even like I'm not scoffing at the book I'm just I know what happens next for me, personally, I spent so much time deciding I knew better because I yeah, I read books on psychology, so I know how to fix my psychological issues. I just, you know, you just have to read this stuff anyways. But it was not, for the frightful day came when I drank once more. The curve of my declining morale and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. After a time, I returned to the hospital. This was the finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and disparaging wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during... Uh, delirium tremens, or I would develop a wet brain, perhaps within a year. Wet brain, for those that don't know, is uh, Wernick-Karsakoff syndrome. And it's a disorder, it's actually two disorders that are so similar that they're usually paired together. And it's basically, it's permanent alcoholic-induced brain damage. And if anybody has spent any time in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, you've met people that have quote-unquote wet brain. It's it's fucking sad is what it is because there's you know for the first portion of it the first half what is called the weirdix is a it's a severe and temporary condition characterized by confusion loss of mu- muscular coordination and abnormal eye movements and vision changes so that part's not permanent the part that's permanent and scary is the one that's called uh, korsakoff psychosis and that one follows or usually accompanies the wernick's encephalopathy uh, and that is it's a chronic condition that can cause significant impairment in learning and memory and interfere with a person's ability to function normally so basically yeah per- permanent brain damage so you know that's something that can happen from too much drinking i get him being concerned about that back to the reading we would soon have to give me over to the undertaker of the asylum they did not need to tell me i knew and almost welcomed the idea it was a devastating blow to my pride I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities, of my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. I feel like he was cornered before when he was thinking about jumping out of a window, but, you know. Now I was to plunge into the dark, joining the endless procession of sots who had gone on before. I thought of my poor wife there had been much happiness after all what would i not give to make amends but that was over now no words can tell of the loneliness and despair i found in that bitter morass of self-pity quicksand stretched around me in all directions i had met my match i had been overwhelmed alcohol was my master trembling i stepped from the hospital a broken man fear sobered me for a bit then came the insidious insanity of the first drink and on Armistice day 1934 i was off again Everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debacle. I was soon to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that was incredibly more wonderful, wonderful as time passes. Near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen. With a certain satisfaction, I reflect there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. My wife was at work. I wondered whether I dared hide a full bottle of gin near the head of our bed. I would need it before daylight. My musing was interrupted by the telephone. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. He was sober. It was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. Rumor had it that he had been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he had escaped. Of course he would have dinner, and then I could drink openly with him. Unmindful of his welfare, I thought only of recapturing the spirit of the other days. There was that time we had chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. The very thing, an oasis. Drinkers are like that. The door opened and he stood there, fresh-skinned and glowing. There was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. What had happened? I pushed a drink across the table. He refused it. Disappointed but curious, I, I wondered what had gotten into the fellow. He wasn't himself. I bet Bill was also thinking, well, that's all right. That's more for me. Thanks for turning that down. But he said, come on, what's all this about? I queried. He looked straight at me. Simply, but smilingly, he said, I've got religion. I was aghast. So that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot. Now, I suspected, a little cracked about religion. He had that starry-eyed look. Yes, the old boy was on fire, all right. But bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gin would last longer than his preaching. But he did no ranting. In a matter-of-fact way, he told me how two men had appeared in court, persuading the judge to suspend his commitment. They had told of a simple religious idea and a practical program of action. That was two months ago, and the result was self-evident. It worked. He had come to pass his experience along to me, if I cared to have it. I was shocked but interested, certainly I was interested, I had to be for I was hopeless. He talked for hours, childhood memories rose before me, I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice as I sat on still Sundays way over there on the hillside. There was that proffered temperance pledge I never signed, my grandfather's good-natured contempt of some church folk and their doings, his insistence that the spheres really had their music. But his denial of the preacher's right to tell me how he must listen. I, his fear, fearlessness as he spoke of these things just before he died. These recollections welled up from the past. They made me swallow hard. So what he's really describing is somebody that he probably assumes with an, was an atheist. This This person who didn't fear God, I guess, and spoke openly just even before he died of how how much contempt he had for it that's that's kind of what i imagine a lot of these older folks or folks from this time period really thought atheism was like you still kind of believe in god or you knew that god was real but you were just real upset with him so it's interesting to see that and know that bill bill wilson definitely grew away from this idea as he got to know more atheists he was very open to learning about other people clearly you can hear it and see it in his literature as he progressed and some letters that have resurfaced and even that open open statement from the god word pamphlet you know, he moved far away from this general idea that he had of atheism way back then. That wartime day in old Winchester Cathedral came back again. I had always believed in a power greater than myself. I had often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. Few people really are, for that means blind faith in the strange proposition that this universe originated in a cipher aimlessly rushes nowhere. Well, I mean, no, of course not. That's not what most of us believe. We just don't necessarily think that some dude just dreamed it up one day, like a light switch, and made all this stuff happen in seven days. Like, I think this is kind of... We start to get a little idea of just how little he knew of the idea of atheism and honestly how scared a lot of people were of it back then. My intellectual heroes, the chemists, the astronomers, even the evolutionists suggested vast laws and forces at work. Despite contrary indications, I had little doubt that a mighty purpose and rhythm underlay all. How could there be so much of precise and immutable law and no intelligence? I simply had to believe in a spirit of the universe who knew neither time nor limitation, but that was as far as I had gone. So I honestly believe something very similar. I don't necessarily think that it's like a supernatural force, but I I do feel that there there is the possibility that there are measurable phenomenon that occur regularly that bring about certain aspects of of life that we don't quite understand i mean we're still just now digging into like quantum mechanics which is something that is fairly new in the realm of science and there's other theories and theorems about like like alternate realities and potential alternate timelines and while all that just seems completely bonkers to even consider the idea that the earth is round and that planet's Revolve around the sun was also equally as bonkers. So I think maybe things that seemed spiritual, uh, you know, spiritual and and fantastical and obviously godlike back then, that have over time gotten proven to be other than that. I mean, we thought weather was controlled by different gods. So that's obviously been proven through science. I think there's other seemingly supernatural-like events that have occurred that we'll eventually understand a little better. And I think some of that that maybe can't really be pinpointed by something scientific is like this feeling of faith and belief, because there is a lot of power in that. There's a lot of power in faith that maybe isn't specifically physical, but seems to have the ability to allow people certain physical feats, amazing feats of physicality that maybe wouldn't have occurred without that faith, that kind of blind refusal to give up on a certain thing because you believe in the outcome. You know, there's people that have run hundreds of miles, like that guy who ran across the country back and forth or something like that, who was running hundreds of miles. Clearly, whatever he was believing, whatever he felt was real, that he told himself was real, superseded a lot of what we know about science. And it really just came down to him thinking it was true enough that it was like there's that anecdotal story the guy who was trapped in a box car right that thought he was freezing to death and the temperature ended up being like 55 degrees or something like that you know, the idea is that he actually believed it so much that his body started following suit and there's supposed ideals that people can do that stuff on purpose they can change their heart rate they can change their breathing to the point where they seem dead i don't know a lot about that kind of stuff but i do know that there is a power of belief that can occur that can have manifestations that are real And I think that's just going to be something that we'll eventually learn and can measure with science. I I don't think it's God. I don't think it's a a special sky being, but I don't think being an atheist makes me skeptical of its existence. It makes me skeptical of its ability to prove. So yes, I think that at some point weird shit happened. And I think that at some point we'll find a way of measuring it with scientific means. That to me is more of my atheism and in play and at work. Sorry, got a little off there, which is pretty common for me. But I think this will be... We're getting into that realm. We're going to get into it a little bit more with a couple of the other chapters. But, you know, this is the first time he's really touched on the idea that no one's really an atheist, which fucking obviously that's not true. But that because there's no way to disprove this stuff, then obviously we have to prove that it's God. You know what I mean? Like, that's obviously not how I believe it works either. And there's, I'm sure people that have read this part and they're like... They're so stuck on it that they get upset. I did the first time when I was younger and I was going through this program. I was like, well, what the fuck is this guy even talking about? He built this whole program around this ideal. Ooh, I don't think this is going to work for me. And there is a way to look past it. I honestly believe that given the chance, if any one of us, any of the atheists that are in this program had had a chance to really sit down with Bill and explain their side of things and where they're coming from, and I don't mean the militant, super angry at God atheists. That might be a different conversation. They have value as well. You're all welcome here, but... There's a difference between being so angry at God and being so angry at Christianity or a religion or religions in general that you turn hateful and resentful towards them. That that becomes a different conversation. I mean people that just are uh, of a mind that, you know, Jesus wasn't God's son, that God wasn't real, you know. So back to the reading. With ministers and the world's religion, I parted right there. When they talked of a God personal to me who was love, superhuman, strength, and direction, I became irritated and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. To Christ I conceded the certainty of a great man, not too closely followed by those who claimed him. His moral teaching most excellent. For myself, I had adopted those parts which seemed convenient and not too difficult. The rest I disregarded. Which, of course, that's how a lot of Christians act not throwing shade on Christians, just that's really how it goes. That's why there's so many different versions of is because you've got the ones that just figured every word in the book was true, and then you got the ones that are like, eh, this was written pretty weird at a weird time in history, and there weren't a lot of laws people were following, and so maybe some of it's really just based on that. And then you got the ones that are like, look, most of it's probably bullshit, but this one part that says gays are bad, we're believing in that only. We're gonna still watch football, and everything else that's forbidden in that give me that you know i'm gonna have a handful of shrimp or whatever else but it says don't lie with dudes so quit being gay it's just all over the place and people choose what they want to believe out of it that's where the danger lies Uh, in in organized religion. The wars which had been fought, the, the burnings and chicanery that religious dispute had facilitated made me sick. I honestly doubted whether, on balance, the religions of mankind had done any good. Judging from what I had seen in Europe and since, the power of God in human affairs was negligible. The brotherhood of man a grim jest. If there was a devil, he seemed the boss universal, and he certainly had me. This is just his more like the great American novelist peeking through. But my friend sat before me and he made the point-blank declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. His human will had failed. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. Society was about to lock him up. Like myself, he admitted complete defeat. Then he had, in effect, been raised from the dead, suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he had ever known. Had this power originated in him? Obviously it had not. There had been no more power in him than there was in me at that minute, and this was none at all. That floored me. It began to look as though religious people were right after all. I mean, that's one direction you could go with it, I guess. Here was something at work in a human heart which had done the impossible. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. Never mind the musty past. Here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. He shouted great tidings. I saw that my friend was much much more than inwardly reorganized. He was on a different footing. His roots grasped a new soil. Despite the living example of my friend, there remained in me the vestiges of my old prejudice. The word God still aroused a certain antipathy. When the thought was expressed that there might be a God per- personal to me, this feeling was intensified. I didn't like the idea. I could go for such conceptions as creative intelligence, universal mind, or spirit of nature. But I persisted that the thought of a czar of the heavens, however loving his sway might be. I had since talked with scores of men who felt the same way. My friend suggested what then seemed a novel idea. He said, why don't you choose your own conception of God? And this is where I'm like, if you can choose a conception of God, you can choose a lack of one. But I guess... I guess it's really just semantics at that point, realistically, because for me, what I believe, quote unquote, if we're going to use that term, I think it's a safe term to use, even if you're non-religious or if you're an atheist. I believe that this program has worked for people, and therefore I give my care, my surrender to the fact that the program will work for me as long as I do that, as long as I just believe that it will. And it seems ridiculous that that's the case, but it seems to work. Choosing a lack of God... And yeah, I guess choosing the group, it's not really a belief that the group is on some sort of higher plane of existence. I don't think the group controls the weather. I don't think if gays get married that it's the group that sends tornadoes to Texas or whatever. I think really what it just means ultimately is that I know I don't have the answers. And much like I would believe in the process of uh, therapy, going to psychotherapy, or the process of using certain medications to heal myself from certain wounds, I believe in the process of Alcoholics Anonymous and everything that's kind of come attached to that. It doesn't necessarily mean that I don't leave some stuff at the door. It just means that if I go through the steps as they're prescribed in a way that works for me, that I'll get sober and I'll stay that way. So yeah, when somebody says something like, why don't you choose your own conception of God? I think just choosing none is an option. None of the above. Uh, It's in there as well. That statement hit me hard. It melted the icy intellectual mountain in whose shadow I had lived and shivered many years. I stood in the sunlight at last. It was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. I saw that growth could start from that point. Upon a foundation of complete willingness, I might build what I saw in my friend. Would I have it? Of course I would. Now again, that's just basically saying that as long as you just kind of give up on the idea that you can do this shit on your own and that you have all the answers and you are the only one capable and that comes back to the idea that it's just a lack of self-will if you just got enough will and enough willpower then you would be fine it just kind of points to the fact that you need something a little bit outside yourself you need to trust something else and i don't necessarily believe again that it has to be some mythological being or higher power but i think it's a safe bet to believe that if this program can work for hundreds of thousands of people, then just following the tenants in it and believing that it will work for you, if you could find it a way to make the words work for you, that it'll also keep you sober. But you have to believe in that process. You'll hear people say, well, I took my will back. And I guess in a way what it's saying is you at some point decided you now all of a sudden have all the answers. The program no longer could offer you anything and you went about your business and... You know potentially drank or got into a position where you were no longer practicing the stuff that got you sober i'm speaking of myself when i say you in this case like it's just kind of projection when i'm saying this so yeah anyways back to the reading thus was i convinced that god is concerned with us humans when we want him enough at long last i saw i felt i believed scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes a new world came into view the real significance of my experience in the cathedral burst upon me for a brief moment i had needed and wanted god there had been a humble willingness to have him with me and he came but soon the sense of his presence had been blotted out by worldly clamours mostly those within myself and so it had, had been ever since How blind I had been. So this is where I would kind of have have a departure. Like basically what he's saying is. Once you just stop believing in this power that's greater than you. Then that power just gives the fuck up. And he's like you're on your own. Good luck drinking yourself to death. But. That, so that's where I'm like, well, come on, man, that just doesn't make any fucking sense. Like, if you choose a God that loves you, then wouldn't that God also stop you from drinking whether you wanted to or not? Like, wouldn't it remove the urge to drink permanently? It wouldn't be contingent on you specifically working a program as it's written? That just sort of kind of starts leading into the whole like anybody who didn't read the book, the Bible, before it was written because there was no Bible basically went to hell because they didn't practice any of the the importance of what was in the book. And maybe I just don't understand that religion or that philosophy enough to understand that that's not quite how that works but it's sort of one of those things like if if folks were going to heaven before the book was written why why wouldn't they just continue to go to heaven Like, why would they need to have that contingency uh, and it's the same with aa i don't feel like you need a contingency from this higher power as long as you're doing the program you stay sober it's really as simple as that and i don't think that there's backseas on that when it's just weird for me to think that you could upset your god bad enough that he's like fuck you get drunk then you know because you missed a meeting that just seems difficult for me to wrap my head around at the hospital i was separated from alcohol for the last time treatment seemed wise for i showed signs of uh, delirium tremens there i humbly offered myself to god as i then understood him to do with me as he would i placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction i admitted for the first time that of myself i was nothing that without him i was lost I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to my newfound friend with a capital F, take them away root and branch. I have not had a drink since. My schoolmate visited me and I fully acquainted him with my problems and deficiencies. We had a we made a list of people I had hurt or toward whom I felt resentment. I expressed my entire willingness to approach these individuals, admitting my wrong. Never was I to be critical of them. I was to write all these matters to the utmost of my ability i was to test my thinking by the new god consciousness within common sense would thus become uncommon sense i was to sit quietly when in doubt asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me never was i to pray for myself except as my request bore on my usefulness to others then only might i expect to receive but that would be in great measure My friend promised when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my creator, that I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems. Belief in the power of God, plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things were the essential requirements. Now, what he's talking about here is that they sat down and they did the moral inventory, which will come later and we'll talk about, uh, and then they also made the amends list. So they basically did the whole 12 steps Just in that afternoon, like he showed up for dinner the next day, he came back. They busted out the steps and he was ready to go. Uh, it doesn't sound like what people do now, and probably for good reason. I can imagine that back then, maybe your wrongs list was a little different than it might be now, or uh, who knows? Who knows how it was that they were able to bust this out so easily? Partly because there wasn't a program yet, and partly because people didn't overthink this shit like they do now. Like, it took me forever to figure out what kind of a format I was going to use on my four step. You know, finally, my sponsor was like, you know, if you thought about this a lot less, you'd already be done with it so you know they busted this out in one day while he had his amends list that he was going to work through the idea was real specifically if he just stopped doing that stuff there's a really good chance he was going to start drinking again and it's really easy to remove the god portion of that and realize that yeah if you stop doing the things that make you no longer an asshole to the people around you then you're now going to have a whole new list of people that you're going to have to fix these wrongs for and there's a really good chance that that's going to make you go drink Simple, but not easy. A price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. I must turn in all things to the father of light who presides over us all. These were revolutionary and drastic proposals, but the moment I fully accepted them, the effects was electric. That's that surrender. Once you just kind of give up the idea that you have all the answers and you know, okay, I have a solution as long as I follow this. There's a lot of peace there. When, you've, when you can fully do it. Just trusting into this whole thing, it's just, there's a lot of peace there. There's a lot of like, just ease that comes about. Okay, I have a plan. Once that plan's in motion, then I just follow these steps and everything's gonna work out. it's just, there's a lot of freedom in that. There was a sense of victory, followed by such a peace and serenity as I had never known. I've, I've felt that a few times. Uh, there was utter confidence. I felt lifted up, and as though the great clean window of a mountaintop blew through and through. God comes to most men gradually, but his impact on me was sudden and profound. I, I obviously didn't have one of those God moments or aha moments. Maybe an aha moment, I guess. I did have one of those, like, kind of, holy shit, if I just basically shut the fuck up for a little bit... Then I might learn something, kind of moments. For a moment, I was alarmed and called my friend, the doctor, to ask if, he, if I were still sane. He listened in wonder as I talked. Finally, he shook his head, saying, Something's happened to you, but I don't understand. But you had better hang on to it. Anything is better than the way you were. The good doctor now sees many men who have had such experiences. He knows that they are real. While I lay in the hospital, the thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They, in turn, might help work with others. My friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. This is an important thing, and it will come up more than once. I'm I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not reading this right now. This is me talking. My friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. This is important. This means that even when he's not in AA, basically, which I can extrapolate that into that now, that's what this is saying. Even though he's not around other people that need to quit drinking, When he's around his wife, he's around people at work, when he's around the checkout lady, he needs to continue to work the steps that he's learned in this program. Maybe they're not quite steps yet, but he needs to continue to practice these principles, meaning he's got to treat people with respect and dignity and kindness, even when he doesn't necessarily want to, uh, even when they're not having to do anything with alcohol. They don't have to be in the program to be treated with dignity and respect. He just needs to do this all the time. I feel like sometimes that gets missed, maybe by me. That just because I show up to a meeting and I get all my meeting stuff out, that doesn't mean I get to go be an asshole to the person that I live with. It doesn't mean I get to yell at people in traffic. It's not a free pass. This isn't Catholicism. This isn't confession. You don't get to just come here to the meetings or to the group or to your sponsor, unload a bunch of shit, and then go about your day being a complete asshole. That's not how any of this works. Particularly, was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me? Faith without works was dead, he said. And how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again, and if he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that good old Bill dropping is a- on us. And you know, that's true. I mean, if you work these, if I personally don't work these steps, there's a very good possibility that had I not started coming back into the program, if I had just continued on this path that I knew how to stay sober now and everything was fine and I'll just never drink again and it's as simple as that, and I did drink, there's a very good possibility that this was going to result in me killing myself, like I were giving it a really good solid effort. I may have given it a good community college try the first time around, but I'm one that learns from my lessons. So yeah, it could be a death sentence for me to drink again. And I have a feeling that it's like that for a lot of people. I hear a lot of old timers say that they probably have another drunk in them, but they may not have another sobriety. So I do believe this. I do believe that, like me personally, resting on my laurels was extremely dangerous and was inviting the possibility of death. Back to the reading. My wife and I abandoned ourselves with enthusiasm to the idea of helping other alcoholics to a solution of their problems. It was fortunate for my old business associates remained skeptical for a year and a half, during which I found little work. I was not too well at the time. It was plagued by waves of self-pity and resentment. Uh, it's, It's really important to note that Bill Wilson suffered from pretty chronic depression throughout his entire life, even during sobriety. Now, on one hand, this presents the issue that we we definitely if if necessary need to seek outside help that alcoholics anonymous does not solve depression it gives us tools that make our lives a lot easier and tr- can you know lead us to treating better with uh, people with more respect and even find ways of treating ourselves with respect and a lot of self forgiveness it teaches us a lot of that kind of stuff but it is not a cure for severe mental illnesses and that it's not unhealthy for you to seek that outside help i wish bill had done that a lot more often Conversely, on the other hand, in Bill's case, what it ended up doing was providing some literature that has gone on to help keep a lot of people sober, and I don't think that he would have gotten through that literature, gotten through writing that literature, if he wasn't using it as a way to work himself out of those depressions. The 12 by 12 is an example of that. Like he wrote that as a way to work through a very massive bout of depression. He's even talked about that in some other letters or something. In particular, the, the 12 by 12. But also, you know, something appeared in the grapevine in 1953 called, called emotional sobriety. And we are definitely going to get into that as well. Like he, he really, through his depression brought about a lot of potentially life-changing literature and while I do throw some cracks and some jokes about him trying to write the great American novel at some point he sort of abandons that and just tries to get all this shit out of him because he figured out the way to do it was to put it on paper now I don't know if he ended up finding outside help eventually uh, but this seemed to actually help him with his many bouts of depression so yeah one hand if uh, don't don't assume that you can write yourself out of it. Get some outside help. Go see a psychiatrist. Go see somebody that might be able to actually dig into some stuff that this program's just not going to cover. Don't be scared of doing that. Don't feel like you're skipping a step or that there's something broken inside you because you need that outside help. That's that's not the way that this works. It's, it's healthy and it's safe to do. And it's encouraged. He goes on to say, This sometimes nearly drove me back to drink but I soon found that when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic would save the day. Many times I have gone to my old hospital in despair. On talking to a man there, I would be amazingly lifted up and set on my feet. It is a design for a living that works in rough going. Now, just going to a meeting can help with this. Like if you're feeling down like this, personally for me, I keep I keep saying you and I'm not meeting it that way. For me, if I'm feeling a certain kind of way, like I was earlier when I explained that I, I had come back from helping pack up my grandmother's things and went to a meeting and I felt better part of going to a meeting is the fact that you being there allows the meeting to exist it's a very small thing and it can be somewhat of a cop-out don't I don't allow that to be my only source or should not I guess I should say allow that to be my only source of giving back or helping other alcoholics but there is service there now you can I can extrapolate on that and help out with the chairs or clean up after the meeting or some other act of service. And, and just being outside myself, even for that small amount of time, always helps. I've never once helped out at a meeting and left thinking, man, I better go fucking get drunk because this is bullshit. i not saying that that's going to happen for everybody, but It is a really good cure for feeling like shit. Helping people just seems to be. We commence to make many fast friends and a fellowship has grown up among us of which it is a wonderful thing to feel apart. The joy of living we really have even under pressure and difficulty. I've seen hundreds of families set their feet in the path that really goes somewhere. Have seen the most impossible domestic situations righted. Feuds and bitterness of all sorts wiped out. I've seen men come out of asylums and resume a vital place in the lives of their families and communities. Business and professional men have regained their standing there is scarcely any form of trouble and misery which has not been overcome among us in one western city and its environs there are one thousand of us in our families we meet frequently so that newcomers may find the fellowship they seek uh, that, that meeting hall that I was talking about was one of the places that became just that. Somebody found this program so helpful in their life that they, they willed the house over to the AA program. This the kind of stuff is just amazing to me. At these informal gatherings, one may often see from 50 to 200 persons. We are growing in numbers and power. It says in 1993, AA is composed of over 89,000 groups. That number is obviously grown. This is an older an older book. Uh, An alcoholic in his cups is an unlovely creature. Our struggles with them are variously strenuous, comic, and tragic. One poor chap committed suicide in my home. He could not or would not see our way of life. There is, however, a vast amount of fun about it all. I suppose some would be shocked at our seeming worldliness and levity. But just underneath, there is deadly earnestness. Faith has to work 24 hours a day in and through us or we perish. And that's always an important lesson too. Don't take yourself too seriously. Yeah, this is serious business, but it doesn't mean that we're serious all the time. Again, one of the things that I really appreciate about the more fundamental style of AA and their community and the fellowship is that they do all kinds of shit, you know, like like the speaker meeting that I used to go to, there'd be cake there every uh, every week, uh, there'd be joking and laughter, there'd be just a fun time. It was, it was an event, and it was a weekly event, and it was kind of a, a little bit of a circus style event, and even though the speaker meetings were usually very serious, everything leading up to it and after was, was a little jolly, if there's going to be a term used for it it. I just, you know, there's an importance to that for me. Knowing that my life isn't going to just be dreary, dungeonous style basements, you know, complaining about how terrible life is now that I'm sober enough to deal with it. That, that wasn't what appealed to me when I first was getting sober. And now that I've kind of opened up to just what this all means to me, I can see that it's not... It's not as gray as that. It's not as it's not as dreary as that. Most of us feel we need to look no further for utopia. We have it with us right here and now. Each day, my friends, simple talk in our kitchen multiplies itself in a widening circle of peace on earth and goodwill to men. Bill W., co-founder of AA, died January 24th, 1971. And he left behind an incredible story that I managed to wrap up in this entire episode, but it will not be the last time that we talk about because... It's just too big. Like I said, there's letters that he left behind, there's videos that he did, and he's not the only one. It's He's not a messiah for me, but like I said, he worked through his depressions by giving us things to help us stay sober. Like He was working, in a way, how I hope this works for me. Because while I'm not necessarily in one of these massive depression uh, cycles that he had gone through, or that I have previously gone through, I'm in a lull. There is... While I feel emotionally stable and I feel safe, I just feel that I'm not doing enough. This is this is one of those things. He wrote, he wrote books that helped him work through it and went on to help other people and I'm doing this podcast. I don't know if anybody's even going to listen to this thing. I'm not doing it for the hopes that it becomes like this extremely popular thing. I'm doing it because working through this, talking about this as if I were talking to somebody else with the intention that it might help somebody else is helping me stay sober and it's helping me get back into the program and it's helping me take this seriously again. You know, my sponsor keeps telling me that I have a very interesting and unique take on some of this stuff. And, you know, maybe he was just doing that to inflate my ego. I don't know. But what I do know is that I enjoy this. I enjoy taking these moments in between certain paragraphs and really thinking about what they're actually trying to say here and really look at the idea that, you know, just because it says God doesn't mean it has to be God. And just because that Bill Wilson didn't understand what an, what an atheist was, that the entire program was doomed to misunderstand atheism forever. You know, things like that. Like I feel like the, the discussion there is very important. And I will admit, I, th- I think that being able to do this openly and dissect it and really pick it apart has helped me a lot in staying sober. I need to feel like I can pull coals in something before I can fully believe it. I also need to feel like I'm willing to study something in order for me to take it really seriously. So I hope this is helping people. I really do. And if not, just understand that the the mere existence of this is helping myself and hopefully others out there can find the same thing that helps them stay sober uh, and if this is it man this is fantastic you know you can find me on facebook and share with me some of your experiences i'm on facebook at um an atheist reads the big book of aa and you can send me an email at top hat painter at gmail.com uh, i'll have some other social media links and stuff like that you could reach out to me via the uh the portal that supplies the podcast here Uh, but those two ways would be the best way to interact because then you can also interact with others specifically with facebook you can start interacting with others that maybe have found their way to this podcast and might have similar interests and views as you Uh, until next time you know thanks for keeping me sober